Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Sam Bendett with the Center for Naval Analyses with an update on the Ukraine war, and Byron Callen of Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first, joining us is my dear friend, Barbara Rome, one of Israel's most accomplished reporters and analysts to help us better understand uh, the events of the past week in the wake of Hamas's unprecedented attack on Israeli civilians and Israel's response uh, to eradicate Hamas. Barbara, uh, welcome back uh, to the program. And again, uh, our deepest uh, sympathies, uh, given that you're going from one funeral to another. Right. Well, it's always good to talk to you, Vaga. Uh, it's a pleasure having you on. Before we get started, a word from our sponsor, HII is the designer and operator of the U.S. Navy's live virtual constructive training enterprise, the largest LVC enterprise in the U.S. Department of Defense. HII delivering the advantage. Um, Barbara, it's been more than a week since uh, the deadliest attack on Israeli uh, civilians, uh, certainly since the Holocaust. Uh, On the day of the attacks, Prime Minister Netanyahu vowed to eradicate Hamas, uh, and Gaza was put under siege, and and strikes began almost uh, immediately. The death toll uh, there and human suffering are becoming unimaginable. Uh, Israel has ordered the evacuation of more more than one million. Uh, people uh, from the most uh, populous part of the Strip, the northern end where Gaza City is. Uh, Mm -hmm. Jerusalem is facing some international pressure uh, to open borders. uh, And and indeed, it looks like, I believe, um, uh, quote, water has been turned on. The question is whether you can get the water out without any power. Um, Aside from eradicating Hamas, Israeli political and military leaders have spoken of the need to either depopulate Gaza or make it uninhabitable, playing into the fears of Palestinians saying this is look 1948 all over again, and so we're not we're not going to leave. What's the aim of this military operation? Because strategists, uh, you know, American, other, including some Israeli friends, are having sort of trouble understanding what exactly the end game here is. Look, Vago, uh, Israel has repeatedly been uh, very, very ineptly managing this conflict. Since Israel unilaterally got out of Gaza in 2005, they've been trying to manage it like whack-a-mole. Big ground invasion and maneuvering operation in 2009, then a few air skirmishes. And in 2014, almost 10 years ago, there was another major ground war. And since then, there's, they call it mowing the grass. When it gets right. too intolerable, when the rockets go off and Israel's deterrence it seems to be uh, going down the drain, then it's forced to respond. And then there are ceasefires until the uh, a lull for a while, until the next round. There will not be any next round. There is no longer mowing the grass. I hate to use this uh, term, but you know from the Vietnam War how they say in order to uh, yet to destroy a city in order to save it. I think Israel's goal at this point truly is a new paradigm to remove Hamas, uh, first of all, its uh, ability to wage war and terror against Israel, the the ability to confiscate and destroy all of the mostly Iranian-supplied missiles that it has at its disposal and anti-tank missiles, and you know, uh, a huge arsenal. And once... Hamas is is no longer there either. They, their leaders are um, assassinated or um, or falling victim to this ground maneuvering operation. Until that happens, 
it's it, the international community has to uh, step in because this is not Israel's uh, responsibility. Israel is doing uh, as much as it can to abide within the con confines uh, of international um, law of war. And they are giving notice and there will be quarters. And thank goodness the U.S. is so heavily invested right now in coordinating with the Israelis and making sure and holding Israel's feet to the fire that have, have a plan. We'll give you time to do the plan, uh, but stay within the confines of the laws of war. And that's why what it's trying to do and will continue to do. I'm, I'm, I'm very concerned about the dissonance, though, with this full throttle ground maneuver. First of all, the destruction, it's not urban warfare that we've studied, it's rubble warfare. Right. And um, and booby-trapped rubble. And you have to go in, first of all, with the, the bulldozers and the excavators. And, 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 and then you would try to get to a point of ground maneuvering warfare. This is going to take time. And the dissonance, the tragedy, is that they, they said today 199 hostages taken from Israel, mostly from this peaceful music festival. And they're in Gaza. They're probably scattered around tunnels if they're still alive. And what I'm really, really worried about at this point is uh, that Israel should hopefully become amenable to some type of hostage exchange right off the bat, not to wait for the war to end. How can you wait for weeks or months when there's babies and sick people. Uh, you can't hold them hostage for five years like Gilad Shalit and take good care of them. And you can't wage Antebi uh, hostage rescue missions for 199 hostages, many of them just incapable of fending for themselves. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a, a real mess. I'm concerned about uh, Israel's exit strategy, but at the same time, I need to emphasize that the tragedy that we're seeing, the horrifying images of Israeli airstrikes to this point, it, it, it's, it's heartbreaking, but Hamas is responsible. Hamas is responsible that, for the water, for, for polluting the water by digging tunnels and getting into the ground bed. What, what country does that to its own people? Well, I mean, a, a, a cynical terror organization that's sitting roost over 2.3 million people in a hopeless situation with cynical leaders, sadly, uh, unfortunately, in Jerusalem. Right. I mean, you know, Netanyahu and, uh, uh, you know, even the Sharon government, you and I were in Gaza at the time uh, when uh, aid to the Palestinian Authority, U.S. supplied aid was blocked from going to the Palestinian Authority, giving Hamas the upper hand. I mean, ultimately, if, if you have no job at all, you're willing to work for Hamas, even if you don't like it, because you have to feed your family. Uh, and unfortunately, Iranian, Qatari and other money has been flowing to that uh, right. group. I understand we're, we're trying to change the dynamic on that. But again, I mean, a, a very cynical strategy. Uh, and as uh, you know, the Netanyahu government has focused on figuring out how to change, quote, the facts on the ground in uh, the West Bank. Um, how much, you know, Israel has uh, a lot of stomach uh, to be able to push through military operations, but even it at some point, you know, has to call nomos, whether it was international pressure in Lebanon uh, or uh, as well, uh, ultimately, when things get get bad in Gaza, even if we're looking at a new paradigm, what's the, you know, what's the sense of what the threshold here is? Because to your point, you know, I mean, Hamas is saying an X number of these hostages have already died in Israeli airstrikes, uh, that some of that may be legitimate. Some of it may be illegitimate. We don't know. Uh, 
but certainly waiting for five years, as in the yeah. Shalit case, is not applicable. Right. How 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 long does this go? Because Ehud Barak has been quoted, look, that this goes five, six weeks. That's assuming Israel can get involved in this kind of urban war and not get bogged down, right? Wouldn't- Israel, Israel needs to be decisive this time, not just mowing the grass, but removing the grass and then allowing for some out-of-the-box international coalition of sorts, uh, the Egyptians, Qataris, Turk, Turk, um, Turkish, uh, American. There has to be some type of creative governing coalition, maybe a provisional, temporary um, military. Israel does not want to occupy Gaza. Let's be let's distinguish between the West Bank, where there are the uh, messianic zealots in the Netanyahu government who wants to who want to annex the West Bank. It's Israel's traditional homeland and all the messianic um, uh, positions that that we've all heard. We have to distinguish from Gaza. They, no one wants to occupy Gaza. That's not Israel's aim. Israel's aim is to deal with Hamas once and for all, and then put the mess over, punt it over to the international community for a serious uh, rebuilding and some type of a governing uh, arrangement. And then those poor people, those poor innocent civilians, most of them, 2.3 million civilians, and most of them are so long suffering they're going to have many more years of long uh, suffering because they'll have to be in refugee camps and in tents. Right now, I'm speaking to you. The rain is pouring down, probably the biggest um, rainstorm of the uh, of the season. Can you imagine? They're all outside. They're homeless. Uh, we're going to see tent cities for a long time if Israel, if, and that's a big if, if Israel is successful and given the time and is successful in literally rooting out Hamas. I fear uh, that they might uh, that, that they might get bogged down. Uh, Hamas already has two victory pictures. They have the uh, uh, Merkava tank with the latest trophy uh, self uh, protection system on it. They were they were marauding and um, posing on the tank, and there was a helicopter. Uh, thank God no one was hurt. All the troops were um, evacuated by then. But they have their victory pictures, and if th- they can think out of the box. And there is capable mediation efforts by the U.S., the Qataris, the Egyptians uh, for a immediate or a very, very near term hostage hostage exchange. Let all of these hostages, by the way, there's more than a dozen. These hostages hail from multiple nations. Um, So once that hostage hostage exchange is complete, they go back to their homes, whoever remains alive. And then Israel can go and pick off one by one all the hostages they release from their jails, they can go back and get them. Um, let me, uh, and unfortunately, uh, one of those uh, former prisoners is actually the one leading uh, Hamas yeah. now. Uh, unfortunately, who was exchanged by, yeah. exactly, by uh, the Netanyahu uh, government. And I want to get your sense whether, you know, you talk about a time for creative thinking, and every once in a while, I, I, I think, you know, there is a little bit of uh, delusional thinking, uh, as in the Palestinian Authority is going to stand up and doing this. The administ- you know, the Netanyahu government has spent a lot of time, spent a lot of time, unfortunately, undermining uh, the Palestinian Authority. I'm, I'm making any excuses for corrupt leadership and and what have you. Um, 
when it comes to creative thinking, Congressman Seth Moulton here and a number of others have, have said, our mutual friend, uh, Dr. Dov Zakheim, who's a regular on the Washington program, has also suggested, you know, creative thinking. Uh, and one of uh, the things that I've thought and others like Moulton have suggested is if Israel was to come in and win hearts and minds, that would be very powerful. Come in with food, water, medical aid, and show that you're actually going to change the dynamic. Delusional. In that that is delusional, Vago. It's not going to happen. You cannot win hearts and minds of Hamas. Now, once Hamas is eradicated- Not, not for Hamas. I'm not what, saying win hearts when, and minds of Hamas. Yes, when, I'm saying win hearts and minds of Gazans. Right. A absolutely. We're caught in absolutely. the middle. Once, once Hamas is rooted out and these poor refugees uh, are uh, provided for by international organizations and UNRWA, then yes, absolutely, Israel should uh, be one of the leaders in a campaign to win the hearts and minds of those innocent uh, two billion plus uh, civilians who will remain. They deserve a home. Um, I use the term home lightly because uh, many of them uh, came, you know, from Israel proper in 1948 and then 1967, but uh, there you have to start somewhere. And Hamas is this genocidal Islamic fundamentalist terror group that is not willing to compromise, unlike uh, the, um, the PLO, the Fatah Authority in the West Bank. Uh, in, uh, in Indeed, and it's interesting uh, that the security cooperation, uh, at least on the West Bank, uh, remains, uh, you know, functional, as you pointed out uh, last week uh, as well. Uh, Barbara, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, and I'm uh, sorry you and so many others are having to go through this. It's going to be a difficult week uh, and beyond, uh, especially given that, you know, uh, 300, more than 300,000, something like 360,000 reservists have been mobilized. And that touches uh, every Israeli family as well. Well, let's uh, just keep so an eye. Let's just keep an eye on the northern border that uh, it should uh, remain on a, uh, a low simmer and not erupt. Is that is do you are, are in 30 seconds? Are you concerned about that? Or do Very. you think very concerned. And here we, we can uh, speak strategically. Here it's really uh, with the presence of the U.S. with two aircraft uh, carrier battle groups uh, in the Eastern Med. This is a this is a power superpower or great power confrontation between America and Iran. And as you know, Hezbollah is completely a client, a proxy of Iran. So right now, there's provocations. Israel's deterrence is very very weak. If, if non-existent to this point. And I would dare say that it's the U.S. presence that is keeping that border uh, on a low flame. So let's just and watch. Do you think, uh, as Tom Friedman uh, wrote, uh, the outcrazying the crazy in 2006 bought sufficient deterrence? Absolutely. Hassan Nasrallah admitted as much when he uh, sent forces to kidnap uh, those two uh, armored soldiers, and then Israel did. Go, the landlord went crazy. That is a code word in Israel for, uh, or the dachia, you know, the just right, right, right. No, no holds barred. Uh, so let's hope that uh, uh, calmer heads will prevail and deterrence will be restored. And thank you, America, for keeping things somewhat, somewhat under control. Barbara, thanks so very much again uh, for joining us. Very much appreciated. Look forward Cheers. to having you back on again Bye. soon.
And a quick word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily coverage. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communication sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And as it's Monday, joining me now is Sam Bandet of the Center for Naval Analyses. He's also a fellow at the Center for a New American Security. He's part of CNA's Crack Russia team and one of the world's leading experts on the Russian military and unmanned systems systems worldwide. Sam, I uh, hope you had a great weekend and welcome back to the show. Thanks so much, Vago. Good to be back. Uh, an absolute uh, pleasure. Uh, what a difference a week makes. Uh, what a difference 24 hours uh, can make. Uh, there is a uh, very significant Russian offensive uh, that is being concentrated on the poor Ukrainian town of Avdivka, uh, where uh, defenders are being uh, subjected to absolutely terrific fire, the likes of which uh, we haven't seen since uh, Bakhmut. Avdivka also was the uh, point of um, uh, uh, struggle between the two sides uh, as well. What's happening and how dangerous is it for Ukraine and or potentially how good is it for Russia? Well, it's interesting that Russian military is trying to divert Ukrainian attention from their counteroffensive in the south by pushing at the Ukrainian forces in the east, in the Donetsk region, in the small town of Avdivka. Uh, there have been a number of Russian assaults on the Ukrainian positions. Both sides are um, are describing it as their sort of uh, um, tactical victory. Ukraine is talking about a very large number of Russian equipment, systems and soldiers destroyed and killed and uh, taken out of commission. Russians are talking about how they're constantly pushing at the Ukrainians as well near Avdivka um, and are causing Ukrainians some losses. Ultimately, the question is whether Russians actually will be able to divert Ukrainian attention away from the south and whether Ukrainian line will be able to hold. And um, related questions are whether Russian military has enough resources uh, to actually continue this uh, this push in the east while they're constantly pushed by the Ukrainian forces in the south. You know, I mean, for the last 18 months, uh, just very briefly want to get your sense on this. Ukraine has led the news. Obviously, in the last week, it's all about Israel's Hamas war. How dangerous is this for President uh, Zelensky to not be in, in the focus, in the limelight? Uh, because there is almost a direct correlation between the help you get and how high profile is there are a lot of people who are not even paying attention to what's happening in Avdivka or Ukraine over the past week, sadly. Well, it really depends on who you are uh, when it comes to watching Ukraine. Obviously, those who are watching Ukraine, those who are concerned with Ukraine, those who are concerned with the military aid to Ukraine are continuing to watch that war. And that, of course, includes government officials officials in the Department of Defense, think tank policy community, academia, you name it. Um, obviously, Ukraine isn't the only crisis right now around the world. But again, those who do watch, um, obviously pay attention to it. Another, of course, related issue is that we're heading into the election cycle. And in right. the election cycle, foreign policy issues and foreign policy aid tends to be very politicized. It tends to be boiled down to just a few a boiler, um, boiler plate phrases. Um, and um, once again, it's not always clear whether or not such election cycles can um, can long term impact what is happening in Ukraine or whether they can really impact our foreign assistance to Ukraine. A lot will depend next year on the number of crises and how these crises are solved or not solved and whether or not the war in Ukraine actually clocks into the third year after right. 
after February uh, 2024. But again, those who watch, those who are concerned are obviously constantly watching that. Uh, but for the rest of the population, um, it really depends how the aid to Ukraine is shaped right. in our political discourse, how it's shaped in the media and how it's shaped, I guess, at the grassroots level as well. And uh, all eyes obviously being on uh, whether uh, Congressman Jim Jordan of Ohio becomes House Speaker, given that he is an opponent uh, to uh, Ukraine aid. Um, let me uh, ask you about uh, the lessons Russia is uh, deriving uh, from uh, Israel's Hamas war. Obviously, the Russians, uh, you know, very vibrant in terms of military analysis and actually some pretty tough self-analysis as well. What are the Russians saying about what they're picking up uh, in terms of uh, the war and what's to come uh, as concerns uh, mount that Israel might have a tough time once it goes into Gaza? So according to multiple Russian telegram channels from people who have paid serious attention to their own mistakes and to the Ukrainian advances in drone warfare in general, uh, there are a lot of comments about the fact that small drones, while they played a pivotal role in the initial Hamas assault on, on Israeli positions, are playing a limited role. What's important to acknowledge uh, is that the Russian telegram commentators or, or a lot of these again are fairly um, fairly well-known individuals in the Russian military analysis community back uh, back in Russia and such non-state formations like Hamas can be rather flexible in how they use new technology and how they absorb it and how they use it and what they learn from Ukraine. Uh, these non-state formations usually do not have to go through lengthy, uh, development or acquisition cycles. They're not responsible to any civilian elected body. Essentially, they just take what they need. And so the initial assault that included uh, small quadcopters that took out some of the Israeli high-tech systems uh, was probably borrowed from some of the tactics seen in Ukraine. And again, this debate, how to take these new technologies, how quickly a military or lessons from another war, how quickly the military can adjust to some of the new tech and the new concepts used uh, by other militaries or forces, such as, for example, use of commercial quadcopters. That's the debate that's taking place in the United States and the West and amongst all the other established militaries. And that doesn't mean that Israeli military didn't necessarily absorb the lessons. What we're talking about here is the speed of adoption and the speed of acquisition of these technologies. Once those small quadcopters were used by uh, Hamas, they switched to um, one-way uh, kamikaze drones to attack Israeli positions. There are videos like that. And some of these drones are similar to the models which are used by both sides uh, in the war in Ukraine, the Russians and the Ukrainians. So the big question is, if Israel decides to launch a very complicated ground assault into Gaza, to what extent Hamas will be using for example, commercial quadcopters for intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, to what extent they may be using them as kamikaze drones like FPV types used in Ukraine as well. So, so this is probably the biggest issue. And of course, these issues were um, noted and discussed at the AUSA forum that just concluded in Washington, D.C. Uh, how quickly can the militaries adapt? What they should be learning from ongoing conflicts? And what is the role of private sector and uh, what is the role of um, the, the speed with which the private sector can adapt to some of the military challenges? 
Well, uh, and you uh, brought uh, AUSA uh, into the picture. Obviously, uh, this war was starting just as that conference was starting. Walk us through, uh, from from your standpoint, some of the key takeaways, uh, given that unmanned systems, and again, discussion of the war was, was foremost in almost every conversation there. Well, uh, one of the obvious um, changes um, with the previous AUSA exhibits was the um, a very large presence of different types of unmanned technologies, autonomous technologies, robotic technologies. What the war in Ukraine has demonstrated is that these type of systems, especially if um, uh, if soldiers use uh, cheap one-way commercial technologies, they can greatly augment tactical operations. They can save lives. They can save many lives, in fact. And right. um, if integrated properly into the existing force structure, they can be a very significant multiplier in general of all manner of operations. Uh, as I just mentioned, it all really depends on the speed of uh, understanding this problem set and the acquisition of different types of technologies that can aid the warfighter. Again, the larger the military, the more it is responsible to the civilian leadership, the greater is the time between the development of technology and the acquisition, but the Department of Defense is adapting. Um, they are facilitating the um, development of some of these technologies. They're facilitating this acquisition cycle. They are making sure that a lot of these lessons are absorbed uh, by different branches and that different branches like the U.S. Army or the Marine Corps can actually test some of, um, some of these technologies, which we're seeing in other wars. Um, in exercises and drills, which approximate battlefield conditions. Right. Uh, but again, there is a big difference between a large military and a non-state actor like a terrorist force, which simply buys an X number of quadcopters, rigs them with bombs, and just sends them over. And if that doesn't work, they'll move on to something else. And if that doesn't work, they'll move on to something else as well. This is what we're seeing in Ukraine on both sides um, in a highly unusual um complementary and overlapping capacity where rigid military tactics, weapons and systems um, use is basically taking place alongside this highly flexible, adaptable approach at the tactical level. So can the U.S. military absorb these lessons? Can they incorporate them fully? Can they incorporate them partially? What technologies are going to play a more important role and how all of these weapons and systems are going to be part of a larger concept of operation, larger tactical picture, larger common operational picture, and how they will be integrated into the existing uh, formations and forces. Sam, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks very much. Have a great week uh, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. And joining us now is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, hope you had a great uh, weekend and welcome back to the program. Ready for another busy week. Obviously, uh, there's uh, a conflict brewing uh, in the Middle East again as Israel gears up for its offensive on Hamas. Uh, we heard from Barbara about that. We heard from Sam uh, uh, about Avdivka uh, and the challenge facing Ukrainian troops. So there's a lot of chaos in the world. And yet uh, U.S. aid that would go for uh, Ukraine, for Israel, as well as 
uh, for Taiwan is really being held up in part because we don't have a House uh, Speaker. Uh, Jim Jordan uh, garnered the most votes last year, uh, week as a possible Speaker candidate, but lacks enough to win. And yet his potential elevation is potentially very problematic for defense spending as well as aid to Ukraine. Just you know, frame for people what's at stake in this uh, speakership. You know, he's been opposed to Ukraine aid, and he's also been in favor of this full year CR, which would cut defense spending. So, you know, those are two strikes against him, at least from a defense perspective. I'd be surprised, Vago, if he's elected uh, by the House. I just think, you know, the margin uh, that he needs to win, I think, is is just too slim. Uh, you had the secondary vote. Uh, after the speaker vote about the number of Republicans who might support him or those who were opposed him. I think it was like 55 uh, GOP members were against uh, his uh, potential run for the speakership. So I, I just, I'd be surprised if he won uh, that position. I do think right. you know, it would change my view uh, for U.S. defense to be very negative, quite frankly. Uh, although I think from a global defense spending standpoint, It'd probably be very positive, as I think other countries would really have to reassess what the role of the U.S. is going to be in the world. Um, I, I think, you know, probably the more likely outcome is you're going to see some kind of limited granting of power uh, to McHenry, who's the speaker uh, right. you know, pro tempore. Um, and that kind of leads us to the supplemental package that you guys talked about on your Friday Um uh, round table. I, I don't know how big it's going to be. I mean, I, I think the idea of, a, you know, billions and billions and billions of dollars uh, being passed by the House and Senate, that the Senate might pass it, but the House is still, you know, gummed up on, on all sorts of issues. So it's probably going to be a bare minimum, whatever that bare minimum is. Right. Um, but I, I, I think that's, that's as, kind of as much as you could expect from Congress. And then we're getting to the you know consensus position. I think that there will be a federal uh, appropriations lapse in November. I, I still don't think Congress is so off the rails that they will uh, you know skip a pay period for U.S. military. But you know we're going to lurch from one shutdown CR to the next shutdown CR, and increasingly I am worried that we're going to see defense funded at the full. Uh, level dictated by the Fiscal Responsibility Act. Um, let me uh, take you briefly to what you expect, right? Outlay uh, figures are about to come up. Well, what do you expect to see? Well, that's kind of the near-term position. Uh, uh, yes, on outlays, Vago, they could be reported this week for September, which would round out the calendar uh, calendar quarter that ended, ended September 30th. Um, you know, they're kind of a, a good read through for earnings season. Uh, Lockheed Martin is going to be reporting on Tuesday, um, which is obviously another good read through for earnings season. You know, I, I think they'll be decent. They should be up. Um, you know, I, I don't know exactly by what percent, but, um, you know, there may have been a rush to get stuff out the door because um, there was that risk of a federal shutdown that would have started October 1st. So the outlay numbers... You know, they're going to be interesting, but I think, you know, that that's kind of stuff in the rearview mirror. You really have to think about what's coming forward. And that's where we get into this, to me, is a very uncertain uh, outcome for FY24 appropriations. Um, let me uh, take you to an interesting point uh, you made about uh, divergence between U.S. and European stocks. Uh, what was so interesting from your standpoint? That 
Uh, there was kind of this knee-gut reaction uh, last week to the war in uh, Gaza and in uh, the tit-for-tat exchanges you've seen on Israel's northern border in Lebanon. Um, but, you know, okay, if that was going to increase U.S. defense spending and maybe make, you know, this appropriations logjam, uh, breaking that more likely, that should have just benefited U.S. stocks. But instead, you know, the leading stocks last week were actually some of the European names from a percentage uh, change. So, you know, Northrop Grumman, I think, was up 10 percent. But but companies like Hensold, uh, Talus, Rheimatel were also up strongly. And I think it, it kind of got back to, you know, again, what you guys talked about on the Friday show, which is just this increasingly dysfunctional Congress and the concerns that, you um, yeah, there's another war in the Middle East, but, you know, what does that mean from a global security standpoint? You know, is the U.S. as relying a partner in these issues uh, in Ukraine? And what else is happening in uh, in, in Central Asia? Um, right. So I just think, I just think, you know, this idea that somehow this was going to be a positive for U.S. defense, maybe, maybe global stocks were sending a different message. Uh, in uh, indeed, uh, and really quickly, uh, let's take a look uh, at the week ahead because it's actually a pretty busy week. Well, it is. I mean, you know, besides the speaker issue and what's coming out of the war, I mentioned you know Lockheed Martin is going to be the first company to report results. Uh, House Armed Services Committee is doing a hearing on the replicator program, which is kind of intriguing because I don't think anybody really knows what the replicator program is. Uh, General Saltzman, uh, Space Force is going to be speaking at Center for New American Security. Uh, you've got the Jack Lew nomination to be the ambassador to Israel at Senate confirmation hearing taking place on Wednesday. Uh, there are a couple of events around the uh, kind of the strategic posture report that got released last week. A Senate Armed Services Committee is doing a hearing on that. And I think it's also going to be addressed at, at uh, I believe that it's an Atlanta Council event as well on Friday that we'll discuss that. Uh, and in uh, 30 seconds, uh, takeaways from AUSA, I forgot to ask you that. Um, you know, the big the big ones for me were uh, kind of the, the presence of more robotics, robotic vehicles. I, this is still in the very early stages uh, of experimentation, um, you know, but they were visible. And obviously, unmanned systems were probably even more prevalent. Uh, it was crowded, you know, like I telling people I'm just amazed, you know, how, how that show has expanded. Although you could say that for AFA and the Navy league shows, right. too, but um, it was a very well attended event. Hey, you spend more money, you garner more interest. And that's kind of uh, where we are in terms of uh, threats and the like. Uh, Byron, thanks very much. Have a great week, uh, great weekend, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. We'll be there. Thanks, Fargo. And thanks to all of you for all your time. We appreciate it very much. A special thanks to HII for their generous sponsorship that makes this program possible. We'll see you again tomorrow. Until then, have a great day.